Welcome to the Two Vets Talk Pets podcast, hosted by veterinarians Dr. Lewis Kirkham and Dr. Robbie Anderton, who'll give you the inside scoop on the secret lives of your pets and have a lighthearted look at the latest animal news, health tips, and other random facts. All names of people and pets have been changed for confidentiality, so if the story sounds familiar, don't flatter yourself. Every owner is just as animal crazy as you are. So sit down, place your furry, feathered, or scaly best friend on your lap, and it's over to Lewis and Robbie. Clap your hands and rejoice, listeners. It's episode 124 of the Two Vets Talk Pets podcast, where too much talking of pets is barely enough. I'm Dr. Robbie Ennett, and I'm joined by a man who has just had a six-part COVID survival series given the green light by Netflix. The first episode is entitled, How to Make Your Underpants Last for Four Wears Before They Need a Wash. It's Dr. Lewis Kirkham. Lewis, how are you going? That bitch car basket. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You know, it's, uh, you know, they've run out of Tiger King. You know, and so now they've tried to work out right. Well, what can be the what can be the next, the the, the next one that's just gonna the next serial that's gonna get people just clicking on. Yeah, I've got to watch the next episode. I've got to watch the next episode, and it's what Lewis comes up with after he's turned his underpants inside <laughs> out, back to front, back to front, inside out. You know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> the four different options. Fantastic, mate. That's that's a real dad joke coming out there. I reckon. <laughs> uh, just in time for Father's Day, Lewis. Yes, and Happy Father's Day, those fathers out there for next week. Yes. In Australia, not in the UK. I think it's different in America and UK, Father's Day. What's that, being and, a father? I thought it was a people that, that still all got made the same way, generally. Well, every day is Father's Day, really, isn't it, mate? We've got to be careful because our wives and kids sometimes listen to this podcast, so we need to be very, very careful. No sourdough for you! No, well, it's, it's sitting over there, the sourdough we're having for lunch. It's over there. You might not be able to see it. It's, a, you know, it's, it's right uh, just... Ooh, Got a good right crust there. on it, mate. Oh, a lovely it's a, crust. It's a great it. crust. It's come out of the, um, the, uh, the steam oven. Um, but that's right. The, um, the fruit loaf sourdough is a little doughy today. We think because we oh. use the wrong sugar. But anyway, oh. that's that, fine. Just, that... a, just a tip out there for all the sourdoughers <laughs> that are also sourdoughing in stage four lockdown. How are you going, Lewis? And, and next episode, we'll talk about cross-stitching. Robbie, you'll come on and have a segment on cross-stitching. And Thanks, the week mate. after that is darning of socks. <laughs> crochet. crochet. Crochet, yeah. yeah crochet. And, and whether to use lemonade in your scones or not. Right. <laughs> Ah. Oh, that's good. I had no idea where that's going. That's fantastic. All right. How's your week been? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it was been good. Um, yeah, we've had a had an had an odd week. Um, you know, uh, some you know things that have changed color that weren't supposed to change color. But we'll go into that more. You know, maybe in a subscore episode when we see what, what colors. What colors are we talking here? Oh, a color that it's not supposed to be. What's that? We, the, the what, rainbow. Just, what colors are the rainbow? Well, it's, it is one of the colours of the rainbow, you know, you're, one of the, one of the last colours of the rainbow. But it's you're not, back not, on a fa- Father's Day again, mate. Well, you know, it's something that's not going to have a Father's Day anymore. But anyway, we'll leave it at that, Lewis. We'll leave it at that, because we don't really know exactly what's going to happen with that case. So we need to, we need to, we need to be cagey with that one for now. But one case that I can tell you about was an um, a, a interesting one. So I saw a cat that had come from St. Elsewhere Vet Clinic um, for a second opinion. Yes. All right. So St. Elsewhere Vet Clinic is a, it's a vet clinic that often a lot of uh, you know, uh, vet clinics have got neighbouring theirs where somebody comes in in for a second opinion and uh, may not have been given the same level of advice as what they would have got from your clinic. So right. what, what this particular case was, was a, uh, it was about a five-year-old cat um, that came in that um, was had gone off eating his dry food and went and saw the other vet and the other vet had said, um, I don't think your cat's in any, any mouth pain. 
Um, and the owner said, mm, I think I'd like a second opinion on that. And so I came in and saw us and, um, and I had a look and this, this cat, absolutely was in pain you know yeah, like right. it had um uh it had inflammation of its gums it had a couple of resorptive lesions of a couple of its lower molars you know on Ouch. on each side so this so, so this cat is really 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 sore um and and his mouth was that inflamed it was inflamed right around as well i was actually worried about whether or not he may have had um either feline aids or even a, a the um immune mediated disease the feline uh, uh lymphocytic plasmacytic stomatitis gingerous stomatitis so um so i said to the owner look i I, i'm not gonna pass judgment but um i'm glad that you brought him in to see me because i think your kitty cat might be in some pain i think let's think about going in there and doing some stuff to try and help to take that pain away and he said that other clinic on 27 uh bingham road in uh just around the corner from robbie's elsewhereville well, no, thankfully it wasn't one of the clinics that was really nearby. So right. we don't have to worry it, about them coming in and bite me on the bum, but it was, yeah. You know, there's a fair bit of, there's a fair bit of tact that goes with that sort of thing. I think, I mean, we all get second opinions. I'm sure, you know, some of my cases go for second opinions and it is about, because you don't know sometimes, you know, all credit to yourself with your excellent diagnosis and to the owner, but you don't know sometimes what owners have heard. Yeah. And what the vet said. So what the, you know, until you sort of get the history, I suppose, from the vet themselves, which often for a second opinion, you may not be able to get that because it's a bit awkward. The owners don't want to upset anyone. Blah, blah, blah. That's, 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 yeah, that's all fine. But, you know, there is that thing of, yeah, we all laugh about, oh, how could that other vet have not seen the cat was in pain? But you don't really always know exactly what went on in the consult room and and the emotions that were involved and perhaps what was said and what wasn't said mm. so but it's certainly um certainly good that they've come to you by the sound of it mate uh, yeah, so we got we got him in and we 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 sorted those. See that he, he had um, I think it was about six extractions in the end. Wow. And, um, yeah, because when we took the dental X-rays, we saw that there was a another couple that had had some changes there too. So you know, sad for the young kitty cat to have had such uh, a large amount of change around in that mouth. But taking those teeth out, um, you know, the gums have healed up. We've got him on some stuff to try and help to reduce down the bacterial load in his mouth, and his mouth's now looking a lot better, and he's certainly feeling a hell of a lot better too so um which actually segues us into the the talk we're going to have later on today with uh with uh dr eleanor the uh anesthesiologist uh, anesthesia and uh an analgesia specialist lewis i know i know it was a mate it was really good chat we had so we better better uh, keep moving along dr eleanor holden um she's uh she she was she was a fantastic really really good chat so will we move on to maybe we'll move on to thanking zilkeen why very, not? Because very much. One of the things that uh, that uh, Eleanor was tell- talking about was uh, anxiety and about how important it is to try and uh, not just discount uh, anxiety as a complicator of pain. Um, and and what better? And also talking about you know the um, you don't, don't want to you know let it too many spoilers drop. But, you know um, about uh, how sometimes you need to be careful with older animals or with different disease states and when they're in pain. So um, and how you need to be careful with different medications. Zilkeen's pretty safe. So you know, tell us about it. Exactly, Zilkeen is uh, it's a animal, uh, an animal, a milk, an animal, animal, you mineral, or vegetable. You give it to animals, <laughs> but it's from milk, I which is from an animal. We just want to oh, oh no, it's not almond milk. That's not from an animal. 
Almond milk. Almond milk. Almond well, milk. The, 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 the almonds are grown with, uh, oat, grown with compost. Yeah, well, fertilizer. So that's come from an animal. Oat milk. Have you ever milked an almond? Um, I, I did once, but it wasn't very happy with it because it ended up, it, it had, it had little chafed little almond nipples. It was very, sounds very like Mr. Mr. Tittles on Meet the Parents. Is that Mr. Tittles? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but, um, no, seriously, Silkeen, uh, uh, thank you very much for your support, guys. Um, it's a mild anxiety lowering uh, medication. Um, we are talking about anesthetic soon with uh, Dr. Eleanor Holden, and she's certainly a big proponent of using anxiety lowering medication before. Um, uh, before coming in for, for an anaesthetic. Um, so, so certainly we do use that a lot for animals. A couple of days before they're going to come in for an anaesthetic, we will start them on Sazilkin to help with their anxiety of coming in for the vet visit, coming in for the whole procedure. You know, the stress, you know, they're older, maybe they're blind, maybe they've, they're deaf, um, certainly can help with some of those anxieties as well. So thank you very much, Zilkeen. And then of course, if we wanted to give a little bit of medication, just a little bit of wet food, just before the uh, before the before the anaesthetic, we wouldn't use our sponsors' food because it's still dry food, isn't it, Robbie? It, it is, yes. But but what a wonderful range of dry food they have with delicate care. Um, yeah, if you fed your patients delicate care, Lewis, there's a chance they would never need surgery. You're, you're right, mate. Never need the, that cat on the uh, on the dental. The uh, delicate care dental probably wouldn't have needed those those teeth. That possibly. Possibly, possibly, but, maybe, but you know, maybe, maybe procedure. But, but, but you know, and, and just in case it didn't, they, they could have had the, the dental cat food from delicate care, or if it had a gut problem, then maybe it could have had the, uh, the, the sensitive skin and stomach diet. Lewis, it's made from kangaroo and duck. It's Australian made, Australian owned in Perth. I'm still pretty sure that, uh, that uh, the, the Western Australian Premier is allowing stuff out of Western Australia over what? here to, uh, to Melbourne and the Eastern, uh, the Eastern States. Well, it's an essential product, so I'm pretty sure it, would, it can penetrate the, the, the ring fence that we've got around Melbourne at the moment. I'm sure the delicate cares are straight through. Straight Especially because it's a one-way gate as well. He's more than happy for stuff to go out <laughs> because then the money can get transferred back in. That does it. That's all electronic. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's made over in Western Australia. It's um, it used all Australian ingredients. Um, it's a real. Um, yeah, there's a lot of thought that goes into their different diets. They've got a few different uh, uh, dog diets. They've got the mobility diet. They've got a weight control diet. Head onto their website and have a look at the different options and uh, talk to your vet if you'd like to get your pet onto Delicate Care. Excellent, and of course, a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. Um, you know, we've got a we've got an interview on today, which uh, includes some questions from one of our Patreon supporters. Um, so, if you want to be a part of this show and you want to support us on this show, we really would appreciate that. Uh, for as little as two dollars a month, you can go to patreon.com. Uh, search for Two Vets Talk Pets, um, and you can support us and say, look, we actually really like what you guys are doing. Thanks for organising all these interviews. Thanks for everything you're doing. Um, and here's a little bit just to say thank you from me. So and then, check us out. And then when Lewis sends his sticker out to, sends your sticker out to you, he promises not to lick the back of the envelope because that would not be COVID safe. No. He's got a special little cotton wool ball that's just moistened down with non-saliva fluid just to dab on the back of that envelope to seal it over. Yeah, just a just a dab on the back. I oh, I I um I wear a mask when I'm licking the envelope. How does that sound? Disgusting, actually. <laughs> I, I just pity your daughters when they walk in and see 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 their dad, you know, with a, a mask with the thing protruding through it, you know, or just sort of bulging out and trying to lick the back of an envelope. I'm like, why won't this thing stick? Well, well, you know how the uh, the the mask singer. Yes. 
the uh, got shut down because of because of COVID. How's a beautiful irony in that? Well, yeah, it just shows that masks don't work, doesn't it? <laughs> All righty. Disclaimer. Disclaimer, of course. Yes. Now, hang on. Let me just. All um, advice just, on this show is general in nature. It sure is. I haven't got um, the rest of it. Uh, please um, look up the right sheet. Um, we do our best to provide. We certainly do. Um, the most up to date. Uh, up to date advice. Uh, please consult your veterinarian before following any advice you pet. We do our best to provide the most up to date information because veterinary medicine is continually advancing and changing. Please let us know if we've missed anything or if anything is changing color or if anything needs any clarifications. Um, and All after right. that. All righty. Well, I think I reckon it's about time. Uh, We'll take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll have our interview with uh, uh, our specialist, our anesthesia specialist, Dr. Eleanor Holden. We'll see you in a minute. Hey, Robbie, I'd love to give a shout-out to our friends at PetSure for their awesome free webinar series. Yeah, man, I heard about those. Aren't they called Pause and Learn, as in... P-A-W-S. <laughs> I see what you did there. Oh, mate, there's nothing like a good acronym. It got your attention. <laughs> it certainly did, mate. But seriously, the Pet Show webinars cover some amazing topics, though. They sure do. There's one on COVID-19 and pets, very topical, and essential viewing for all concerned pet parents in this COVID-19 world. Indeed, mate, and for vets as well. Oh, you're absolutely right. There's also another one called Setting Up Your New Pet for Success. And here's one that's really important, Helping Pets Avoid Separation Anxiety. That'd be right in your wheelhouse, wouldn't it? Oh, mate, love that. Anything on behaviour, that's absolute gold. Oh, mate, it's all gold, gold, gold for PetSure here. And you know they're presented by PetSure's Chief Vet, Dr. Danny Hulhan, friend of the podcast, and also, they have a range of other pet experts for each topic, so you know you're getting the good stuff. Oh, mate, that sounds great. So to learn more about these webinars or to register, visit petsure.com.au slash webinars. Registration is free, but spots are limited, and since we've just registered, two less. So make sure you secure your spot today. Oh, T's and C's apply. Visit petsure.com.au for more information. <laughs> Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Dr. Eleanor Holden. Eleanor graduated as a veterinarian from the University of Queensland in 2003 and then spent some time in mixed practice in Lilydale, Victoria, followed by a small animal rotating internship at the University of Melbourne. After spending a few years back at the University of Queensland as a clinical anaesthetist, she headed to the University of Glasgow to undertake a residency in veterinary anaesthesia and analgesia. After completing her residency in 2015, she was appointed as an anaesthesia clinician before returning to Australia in 2017. Eleanor became a diplomat of the European College of Anaesthesia and Analgesia in 2017, and she's also a member of the Anaesthesia and Analgesia chapter of the Australian and New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists. Eleanor enjoys all aspects of anaesthesia and has an interest in loco-regional anaesthesia and chronic pain management. She's currently based in Melbourne, Australia, working for veterinary anaesthesia specialists, providing specialist consultancy and education in veterinary anaesthesia. And I'm not sure if she's a specialist veterinary anaesthetist, a veterinary anesthesiologist, or a veterinary specialist in anaesthesia. But well, what fact, does it say on your card, Eleanor? What, was, what does it say on oh, your... Uh... 
Good question, actually. It, I can't uh, remember. Oh. I don't even know where my card is. <laughs> <laughs> In actual fact, I'm pretty sure she's all three. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and I do know from firsthand experience, she's always as cool as a cucumber and the one you want by your side in an anesthetic crisis. It's Dr. Eleanor Holden. Welcome, Eleanor, to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I, and I, I mean, I, there's a bit of a, a thing with the cool as a cucumber in the crisis thing. You were um, a bit of a backstory there. You were at our clinic um, consulting with a, a particularly complex general uh, anaesthetic that we had going on. And I don't know if you remember. And, um, and it all went really well. The anaesthetic that we had you in for went amazingly well. Uh, it was a fantastic anaesthetic, fantastic recovery. All was going really well. There were no issues. And then you were all sort of all packed up all the gear packed up in the car about to turn the ignition. And then unfortunately we had an owner bring their dog in that was in uh, under car, went under cardiac into cardiac arrest arrest um, and talk about cooling a crisis. It, you were like an angel with a glowing Aurora working on the dog uh, at, at, during the, one of the most stressful times of the vet. And, and I guess that brings a little bit full circle. I mean, we saw a little bit about what you do on a daily basis, but what is it you actually, you know, what is your job in Dale? What do you do on a daily basis? Oh, on a, on a daily basis, uh, I guess simply I do, um, I anesthetize um, patients, cats, dogs mostly at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, it's mostly anesthetizing patients, being um, involved in their perioperative care. Um, I do, um, I'm sometimes called in just for cases, like specific cases, like at your practice. I came in that day because they've got something that's worried the vet. Um, like it's quite commonly patient, older patients with renal disease, heart disease, liver disease, uh, things like that. Other places I go to, um, we do a dental list. Um, so we work with a dental specialist. We work with some of the dermatologists. So we do the cases for them because they're often old geriatric patients as well. Um, I work in other places where um, I oversee. It's like a normal referral hospital but I sort of see a lot of their cases as well so not directly doing a complicated case although sometimes that's what happens um, but then just help you know manage their perioperative care analgesia plans uh, things like that. Fantastic it sounds it sounds really busy so you're, you're all all over Melbourne mainly or do you mostly all over Melbourne yeah yep. it would be mostly the referral um, practices um, but it's also um, like your practice I go into general practices as well so it's kind of both and we go into general practices for um, education um, practice reviews if they want to sort of make sure that their anesthetic protocols or equipment and things like that are up to up to date or if there's anything else to add or change or, or things like that so it's pretty varied, actually. Cool. Fantastic. That sounds really good. Uh, so, Eleanor, tell us, um, what is an anesthetic? You know, so, um, you know, we, we all know the word anesthetic, anesthesia or anesthetic, anesthesiology, GA, uh, local anesthetic. What is an anesthetic? How does it work and why do we use it? Um, we use it because, well, an anaesthetic, or certainly general anaesthetic is what everyone sort of thinks of when we talk about anaesthesia. And that's certainly a um, very controlled, I guess, unconsciousness. And certainly with anaesthesia, it involves, yeah, not being able to perceive pain. So you're unconscious, um, you, you're very, you're relaxed, um, and you're sort of unaware of the 
you know, the procedure that's, that's going on. And we certainly use different um, drugs. I mean, the, the the theory about how it works is a little bit of a, a mystery. We sort of certainly think that there's a, a target, you know, a lot of our drugs will target um, certain um, proteins in our brain um, and certainly GABA receptors. I think people have, have heard a lot about um, and, you know, a lot of those drugs will target that and sort of enhance some of the, the transmission that goes through those, um, I guess, receptors or channels, if you like, um, and that's sort of meant to sort of reduce the activity in your brain. So um, really, you know, we anesthetize a, a lot of our patients because they're not going to tolerate, you know, having an X-ray or, you know, in some of the other places, a CT scan. And, you know, mostly humans, we can say, sit there, it's fine, but, you know, they are unaware. So we have to anesthetize patients for a lot more things than we would for people. Um, and then also it's just, you know, do all these procedures that we uh, want to do with them, like fixing fractures and removing tumours and, you know, things like that. So, you know, all we need to... All sorts of oddball stuff, yeah. Yeah, lots of things like that. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty complex. We don't know exactly um, how it all sort of um, works. We've got some ideas of, you know, how some of these things... Because we've got different drugs, you know, we've got injectable drugs, we've got drugs that we breathe as well. Um, but we do think that they have a... Um, yeah, they target some other receptors in our in our brain. Well, um, yeah, it's really interesting you say that. You know, we don't know exactly how they work. You know, like um, it, it, a question without notice. But you know, drilling down on that, how do we come up with new anaesthetic drugs? Then you know, like, is it just a matter of you know we you know, come up with a little concoction sort of thing and give it to someone and see if they fall asleep enough so that you can pull a toenail off and go, oh, hang on, now we're gonna go on. Like, how are we developing new anaesthetic medications? Uh, well, I think, you know, some of it was, uh, I guess, figured out a little bit by a little bit by accident. And then some of that's been then, I guess, manufactured. And um, some of the drugs that we have these days have been derived from some of the drugs that we've had in the past. Um, and then also our knowledge of, you know, some of these drugs and some of the side effects and our movement into sort of more balanced anesthesia. So, of course, even though with like some of the, like the isoflurane that I think a lot of people know that the, the gas that we sort of we can breathe to keep ourselves um, unconscious. Um, we know that it's not a great analgesic, so we're starting to use other analgesics and sort of try and um, have a more balanced approach to anesthesia as well. So, um, and then as far as, yeah, there's always, I guess, research going into different um, different drugs and I guess analgesics and, 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 things, and things like that. So, awesome. so, how do, so with all those, those sort of new things that are coming out and techniques and stuff, how do you think, obviously we've seen, you know, uh, you, you graduated uh, 17 years ago. We graduated uh, a little bit longer than that ago. Um, how do you think? Some, things, some of us less long than others, Lewis, but, you know. <laughs> 12 months, mate. 12 months. <laughs> um, how do you think, you know, what, are the, what does the future hold? What do you think it'll look like for, uh, you know, anesthetics in the future? Have you got any ideas? Um, I think, I mean, there's lots, of, I'm not sure exactly, but certainly there's lots of conversations coming up about, you know, the anaesthetics and its impact on the environment and how that might change in the future uh, and how right. we might deliver anaesthetics or gaseous anaesthetics do contribute to, you know, they can contribute to, you know, global warming and they've got certainly some effects that way. And do we swap to things like totally intravenous anaesthesia, but then they've also got issues as well um and then wow. there's also all the plastics that we use for administering all that kind of thing um i think they're also a delivery of i guess our pain as well um pain and analgesia um about more other you know if we have other drugs that come out that we can target um 
analgesia, you know, pain-related sort of conditions and things like that too and how we can do that intraoperatively as well. Um, I, think, I think that's a massive change that certainly I've seen when I graduated, you know, there was some sort of perception, you know, I went out and worked in the country first off and it was, you know, don't give pain relief post-surgery to keep the animal quiet so they don't hurt themselves more. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, it's just, just um, you know, very much gone almost the other way where we'll give, you know, pain relief just, just uh, you know, for, for everything that, that seems like it might be in some sort of pain. Yeah, I think there's been a huge difference, I think, and I guess development or involvement over the last, I don't know, 10 longer years and even since I graduated as well. I think the fact that we recognise that animals and our pets experience pain and also um, how we then have gone on to, okay, we've recognised it, how do we assess it and then continue to assess it if we, when we provide analgesia. And, again, this mentality of don't um, give them analgesia because it keeps them quiet because they're painful it doesn't sort of really fly, <laughs> doesn't really fly anymore um, because seems- there's obviously deleterious effects of being painful and all that sort of stuff as well. What- when we look at it now, it does seem barbaric, you know, oh, it's just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know but that's just yeah. how it was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I think that's been a huge, a huge change in the last few years. And it's not anesthesia per se, per se but it's certainly part of all that um, peri, perioperative period of time. And even the chronic pain too. I mean, we're recognising that, the you know, our pets are living so much longer now um, and chronic pain is becoming something that, you know, needs to be looked at, needs to be treated you know, it's part of a quality of life um, kind of conversation as well. Definitely, definitely. It's interesting you bring up about the uh, the, the old, how, how much older our patients are living as well, Eleanor, because we've got a question from one of our listeners, the decal gal over in uh, Southern Carolina. Um, uh, I have a question for the anesthesiologist. She's got the lingo down uh, much better than what we have, Eleanor. <laughs> um, I'm curious about senior dogs and cats and how much of a risk they are for being under anesthesia is there a certain age that is just too risky for them to be put under so you know what what are the risks you know what what are the is there a certain age limit that you say right after that we're not going to give you an anesthetic or how do you sort of approach it how do you talk to people about risks with anesthesia in senior patients yeah, it's funny. I had this exact scenario the other, the other last week, actually, 16-year-old little pom coming in for dental, classic scenario. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, certainly it's always said, oh, age is not a disease, and but it seems to be the one thing that worries um, owners most, I think, as they start to get older and we've got dental disease and things like that that they've got to treat. Um, but certainly with age comes changes in our physiology, and I think, you know, there certainly are those situations where they don't they're not going to compensate as well um with the drugs that we give them you know they're going to have changes in the cardiovascular system the respiratory system renal system that kind of thing so uh, i think we have to be mindful that okay it's not a disease being older but certainly with it comes changes that we need to be aware of um and certainly if like this little pomerani of 16 you know, just healthy, hasn't had a problem, no other sort of concurrent um, diseases or, you know, comorbidities or things like that. But it did have a, did have a dental, um, did have dental disease that needed to be addressed. And her main worry was this dog was 16. I don't have, we don't have a crystal ball to know how long this dog had left, mm. but its mouth was definitely presumably sore. There was, you know, tartar and teeth that were needing to come out. And she's like, well, what do I do? And it's like, well, you know, your 
your patient or your pet is 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 healthy. I mean, he was healthy. He was chatting away, and he was just there was. So I suppose. Uh, hang um, on, ch- chatting away. Does that mean he was aggressive? Eleanor, he was vocal. That- <laughs> he was vocal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Didn't keep him quiet. He was happy as Larry. So he was certainly a very healthy geriatric, um, and it's it's really not a, an easy. It's not an easy decision to know to sort of because Anna said it doesn't come without risk, you know, even for the most healthiest patients, there's still a risk. Um, and uh, she, we had to sort of weigh up the dental disease versus the, the elder patients and what could happen under anesthesia. We knew the dental disease was probably the main priority. Um, so we went ahead because this dog was otherwise, um, he was otherwise healthy. And, you know, he was at home and he was fine. So we um, went ahead with the anaesthetic and he was, he, was, he was fine. And certainly with older patients, you know, I, I need to think about, you know, doses and what drugs and they can be certainly tweaked um, to make it as safe as possible, I suppose. Um, so um, he, was, he, he was fine, which was good. Um, so the other thing is, I guess, with older patients, you are going to get that increased um, incidents of other diseases being present that you have to anesthetize them like we might have concurrent I don't know diabetes or um, it might even have liver disease but then they've also got that dental disease that we need to yeah. need to treat too we need to remove those you know rotten teeth or, or whatever happens and often people put that stuff off and then you know they hit like this little yeah. dog hit 16 and it's like well maybe we should have done the teeth a few years ago I didn't think you'd get to 16 yeah. <laughs> um so it's 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 hard. It's a hard conversation. It's sometimes yeah. difficult to make a decision. So in general, would you say that you know for healthy animals as they get older, does the anaesthetic risk increase, or is it as long as it, they're all? It does increase because you're going to have changes as you get older to your you know things like cardiovascular system and, re- and respiratory system. We don't compensate as well for right. what we you know under the side effects of the anaesthetics that we're going to administer them in the first place. So. Um, yeah, there is there is an increased risk, but certainly we try and reduce those risks by pre-anesthetic preparing, being or being prepared, um, and uh, dose adjustments to drugs, things like that, and then um, doing our best to monitor. I mean, we we monitor these patients under anaesthesia, so that's that's a big thing as well, um, and. And also, I think how we manage the patients as well, you know, level anxiety goes up. They're often sort of their vision loss, all this and hearing loss, all that can add to it too. So sometimes it can be also how you manage the patients and um, as, as well. And, and other things like um, doing pre-anesthetic bloods might help screen, make sure kidney parameters are okay, liver, um, making sure they're not anemic. Um, and those things can certainly help. And it may not change exactly how you do things, but it might help you tweak your anaesthetic protocol for those patients. Um, and, and yeah, and then just um, monitoring afterwards and, um, yeah. Excellent. What, what sort of, when you say um, to, to tweak the protocols, what sort of, you know, is it just, would you use different drugs, different doses of drugs, you know, um, yeah. uh, uh, load them up on IV fluids beforehand? What are the, some of the, you know, some of the little things that you'll do when you, when you do tweak in order to try and help to mitigate some of those risks? I don't have like set protocols for everything, I suppose. I certainly... Why do you go pro- fast and loose? <laughs> just... 
Um, I, yeah, definitely drug um, choices. Um, I may, they may need less often, particularly the geriatrics. You might want to alter doses. Um, and certainly, like if there are reasons in the clinical exam or history that they need fluids prior to, then certainly that too. Um, but yeah, I think looking at them and doing a physical exam, making, and certainly as far as the drugs go, tweaking dose rates um, and just uh, get fluids if needed. Yeah. When you were saying about the pre-anesthetic bloods in, in older animals, like certainly that's something that a lot of our listeners will have heard. Yeah, older animals, all we need to run pre-anesthetic bloods to try and check and see what's going on. Um, trying to hit a little to- hot button topic, where do you kind of stand on doing pre-anesthetic bloods on otherwise young, happy, healthy animals? And remember we've got you can we can cut this out if you want to you know completely go off tap and then go no i want it all to hit the hit the hit the editing room floor you know but, but we are being sponsored by a, a large uh, no no we're not <laughs> look it's it's such a it's it is controversial i think i look i think some of the, there's been a few studies that have looked into it and certainly i um you will it's those ones that you might have that had subclinical disease and even the young ones are going to be those you're going to pick up yeah something subclinical that your physical exam has not picked up but in the majority of thing in the majority of cases it's sort of suggested that if some of the things that you pick up on bloods might not change your anesthetic protocol or how you manage it. But there are certainly those that might have um, stopped, you might have delayed the procedure. So I think, look, if, if money's an issue and I've got young, healthy patient and the history suggests it's been healthy and the physical exam suggests that it's um, healthy, then I don't tend to get too, I'm not sort of too, you know, insistent on it. I think as they get older, and I'm certainly more worried about, you know, renal disease and things like that, then I may, um, it might be, it's certainly a good idea. Um, but again, it just depends on, um, it just depends on, on the, on the case itself. I think that um, if owners are certainly worried and they're happy, then I'm happy to do pre-anesthetic bloods as well. If it eases their mind and the anxiety surrounding anesthesia at the same time. So have no problems with that as well. Excellent yes. answer. Yeah, excellent. So, well, certainly, you know, we're, I'm in Port Melbourne, so we do get people that do take up a lot of the pre-anesthetic bloods. Um, and I reckon, I reckon we maybe get one every three months or so where you go, oh, hang on a sec, we need to do something different. Yeah. You know, it's got any, um, you know, some kidney disease or perhaps yeah. evidence of infection or something like that that we go, oh, hang on, we might delay it or we might actually not do it. So, so I think it does, just, just from anecdotal. I think, yeah. I think it certainly helps us. I guess um, you're talking about risky stuff as well. I mean, it's been, again, being in Port Melbourne, we've got a lot of uh, French bulldogs uh, in Port Melbourne, um, French bulldog owners, um, you know, the brachycephalic breeds. But also we often get uh, some owners who come in with their, um, I don't know, their, their multi-shitty poo and they say, you know, my, my, my breeder says that, you know, I should never give an anaesthetic to, to this dog because it's it's too much of a risk. And and then, of course, we have the sight hounds, the greyhounds, the Italian um, greyhounds, yeah. the whippets. Um, are some breeds more risky for an anaesthetic or, um, you know, if we're looking at the brachycephalics and, and, and that sort of thing? I think the risk comes with, um, I mean, certainly brachycephalics because of their flat nose and their, you know, associated airway Um changes um with them to keep animals breathing when they don't have the right breathing apparatus to begin with 
Yeah. Actually, they're, they're, they're a lot better when we, well, as you, you probably oh, guys have go, seen, yeah. they're a lot better when we, you know, intubate <laughs> them. They're happy to sit there at the end and they're breathing fine. So, you know, so, sometimes we do good. That's what I say to the nurses. Leave the, leave the, the uh, endotracheal tube in a bit longer. Let it have some actual breaths in its life. Yeah, and, without, and, any, and, without any effort. Yeah, yeah they, they exactly. They love yes. it, don't they? Yeah. Quite often. Yeah. Um, and they're certainly being crisper because as far as, you know, drugs are concerned like certainly the greyhounds um when we used to use the you know thiopentone back in the day which we don't now um there's you know they're sort of documented that they don't metabolize that um uh as well but certainly the risks come from yeah brachycephalics come to mind because they're airway problems but most of the time everything else probably the risks come from age and concurrent disease um and things like that that we have to think about that either are going to affect the anesthetic or how does the anesthetic affect whatever it is that they have um at the same time whatever concurrent disease they have at that time so so you so you've never got that phone call from that that breeder saying that uh that my particular special multi doodle pom um shouldn't uh shouldn't shouldn't have an anesthetic is that right um, not how quite that certainly had the whole, don't give my Bengal like ketamine and things like that. You get that a couple of times, you right. know, you don't, don't give that particular drug or, or, um, occasionally you'll get the, my dog had a reaction. You know, sometimes we're asked to come in and do an anesthetic because it's had a reaction to propofol or alfax or something like that, which is pretty, it's pretty rare. Um, and it's generally, I kind of wonder whether it was actually a, a reaction, like a, you know, like a, a allergic or anaphylactic reaction to a drug, but um, otherwise, no. But certainly things like don't give my, yeah, bingo, ketamine. And, okay. and, and actually another, another uh, question that came up uh, on the, on the Facebooks um, sort of overnight almost, I don't know if you're, you're on, you're on uh, a particular veterinary Facebook group talking about uh, giving of trazodone before anesthetics and, the potential of causing serotonin syndrome with um, with alfaxan or propofol. Do you have you heard anything about that? To uh, to put you on the spot there potentially. I think I think certainly trazodone is coming into the spotlight because it's been used because we've got all these anxious yeah. patients, yeah. Um, and certainly it's been used a lot. And I think we have to be mindful that some of these patients are also on other other drugs that um, can potentiate, you know, they're also serotonin reuptake inhibitors and, and of the like, um, because of chronic pain and, and other reasons that they're on it. Um, and the Alfax and the propofol, um, yeah, I, I've heard a little bit about that recently. I sort of um, I've got to catch up. We've stumped the the, uh, the specialist. It's stage four lockdown, Eleanor. You've got nothing else to do. You're just pouring yourself into the most obscure reference articles, surely. You know, it can't all just be Netflix and sourdough for you. <laughs> Sorry about that, Eleanor. I put you on the spot there. <laughs> um, uh, well, what's the, um, so, you know, Apart from Bengals and, and ketamine and, you know, other, other fun things, what's the, what are some of the weirdest, uh, most exotic uh, jobs you've been called in for to try and anesthetise through your uh, an, anesthesiology career path? Um, I, I got, I, I shouldn't take credit for this, I suppose, because I was... Uh, no, I was go for it. Go for it. There's, no, there's no fact checking here. <laughs> I um, got to help with um, one of the dream world tigers 
sustained a, I think it was, I think she was bitten around the neck and that needed to be repaired by a surgeon. So I think there's a photo of me somewhere driving some propofol into this white, white tiger. So that was kind of pretty cool. Wow. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And then um, I also shouldn't take credit for this either, but, <laughs> but, but probably um, got to, I was did locum in South Africa for a couple of months and there was baby cheetah that we were doing, I think it was entropian surgery on. So ah, right. that was kind of cool. Wow. Um, yeah. And, um, and so is that just a, a process of extrapolating from, you know, your domestic cat experience onto the, onto the larger cats or it, do you yeah. use the ketamine, the Bengal, the Bengal based ketamine protocols for the, for the cheetahs? I think the cheetah did get ketamine. Yes. From 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 memory, it was, it was a little while ago. Now I must admit, to be honest, and I, I, I was I think, yeah. I, was, I think there is a video of you dancing with the cheetah on ketamine at after, the, the after party. Dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah. down in the Joburg night spot. <laughs> <laughs> So, so obviously, you know, uh, Eleanor, you, you do a lot of driving around. You, you go to different practices. Um, you know, uh, uh, let, let's envisage you're stuck on a on a desert island. You're on uh, you're on Zanzibar. Let's say in uh, you know somewhere beautiful uh, um, in, in Africa without any cheetahs and and uh, and what, what sort of monitoring equipment? What's the one you know piece of equipment that you'd love to have with you at all times? What do you think is your is your, your what, what's the thing that goes ping that just makes your heart feel, oh, everything's Heart's okay? Thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I want the multi-parameter that it has everything. Right. So That's what is the it? one machine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that machine, what does that machine do? What sort of things does it do? Um, well, it's, um, uh, the one that I take around um, certainly has got, we monitor ECG, blood pressure, um, most of the time it's a non-invasive based blood pressure, um, pulse oximetry and capnography. Um, What's capnography? So, capnography. So we are measuring the entitled carbon dioxide. So the the carbon dioxide that we breathe out gives us an idea of how well we're ventilating under anesthesia. Certainly if, if it's one monitor I don't have, I feel quite lost when I don't have capnography. Um, it's certainly that kind of makes me, you know, patient's, breathing i can assess how well it's breathing gives you some idea of also whether there's any um problems with the equipment too because it can help identify obstructions um it can help identify um apnea really quickly it can help um gives you some a little bit of a non-invasive way of assessing even cardiac output in a way so there's you know circulation um so it's kind of one of those yeah if i was to take it from the other way um i'm certainly most lost if i don't have um I don't have capnography, I find. Um, it's, re it's really interesting to say that because you're, um, whenever you speak to anyone that's you know, high up in the anesthesia world like yourself, you know, capnography is always the one that they always go, oh, it, it's fantastic. But for so long, like I remember when we, like certainly when I graduated, all we had was the app alert, the thing that just told you if the dog was breathing or oh, not, I you know, know, and that was I it, know. you know. Yeah. So um, do, you, do you ever cast your mind back, Eleanor, and think about what it was like back when you had um, you know, graduated and you're running around in, in Lilydale and, and all you had was your, your app alert. alert and maybe maybe just dripping in, you know, the, the IV fluids, you know, counting yes. the, the 20 drips per second, you yes. know, and see yes. how far you've come. Yes, and even even occasionally, I still get past the when I visit places past the app alert 
connector. Yeah. No. This is all you need, isn't it? That's a, no, yeah. yeah, no, I'm fine. I've got my cryptography with me. I remember when, when, again, going back to when first graduate worked out in the country, you know, all we had, yeah, was the app alert that said, yeah, the animal was breathing. So for the, the listeners out there, every breath, you get a little bit of an electronic beep that lets Ping. you know you're under yeah. a seat. Yep, breathing's okay. And the, uh, my boss uh, was doing surgery one day and the app alert broke and it wasn't giving the beeps. And he made the nurse make a little beeping noise every time the animal breathes. <laughs> <laughs> he felt comfortable doing the anesthetic. <laughs> so that's how far we've come. Oh, dear, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> um, Eleanor, one thing that we always say to people when they're, well, most of the time before they have uh, their animals come in for an anesthetic is we, we get them to fast their animals, um, you know, not, not have any food. Um, why is it so important that we need to fast our animals before they have a procedure? Uh, well, cer- certainly um, a big stomach full of food. I guess the most thing we're worried about is reflux or regurgitation and then the possibility of, of um, aspiration. Um, also, even esophagitis, if you've got, you know, a bit of acidic gastric contents in the esophagus, whether, you know, it sets up a bit of esophagitis, which can be quite uncomfortable. Um, so that's kind of the biggest thing we're trying to avoid. Um, and certainly fasting traditionally has been, you know, the night before, which I guess practically is, is the easiest thing. Mm-hmm. Having owners, you know, take away the food, have them their dinner and then, and then that's, um, and then that, that's easy. Um, certainly in people they've sort of, um, moved away from prolonged fasts because of, you know, problems with, um, you know, wellbeing, um, acidic, um, you know, gastric contents, um, irritability, um, feeling hungry, nauseous, um, things like that. So we've, we're still, there's not really a consensus in veterinary medicine as such, although there's some literature to suggest that maybe, um, the prolonged fasts are also not, not ideal. Um, what that timing we haven't really sort of, as I said, come to a consensus just yet. Um, there's a little bit of literature sort of saying, you know, maybe a very small feed sort of three hours before makes your gastric contents less acidic. Maybe it might prevent a little bit of, you know, the incidence of reflux, but then there's some contradictory sort of, um, there's some contradictory word on that as well. Um, but certainly if I have a patient that's come in that morning fairly early and I know I'm not going to do it until the afternoon, I will give them a little bit of wet food. And they suggest the, the papers that have cut, the group that's looked at some of this have suggested half the, um, you know, calorie, calories that they normally have, half of that in the morning, wet food, dry food tends to stick in the stomach a lot longer. Um, it might be a, a, a good idea. Um, I just give them a very small amount if they are going to be done in the afternoon. I think we have to be mindful also of what the procedure is that they're having. Um, you know, in his, like brachycephalics and the history of reflux, you can be mindful of that kind of thing and, you know, all that kind of stuff too. So I think it's the whole reflux and what causes reflux. There are certainly risk factors like age and weight. So if they're, you know, larger dogs, uh, things like orthopedic procedures because you're turning them is also a risk factor. So you've got to remember all of those before just, you know, giving food. And I think we, it's very easy for, to ask the owners the night before to, you know, take away their food and that's, you know, so that they don't get too much in the morning. And um, yeah. so yeah, you've got to be, you've got to be mindful of you know, what's happening. Um, it's always at risk. The, the, the one thing that always frustrates me is that as much as what we say, don't give your animals anything to eat in the morning, hmm. they also then tend to not take them out and give them a chance to go and do a poo in the morning either. <laughs> straight out from the house and then bring them straight into the vet clinic. And then, you know, yeah. 
either before your procedure or after your procedure. And then suddenly out comes the, the big boo that was supposed to come out on the nature strip on the way in. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, even maybe we should be changing things. Like, don't give them any breakfast, but make sure you empty out the other end. That'd be maybe that's, <laughs> maybe so. so yes. Certainly make the nurses a bit happier anyway. Well, yes. Yes. It would make them much more happier. Yeah. The thing I have with, um, obviously, I'm, I'm big into behaviour sort of stuff and I really love, you know, the anxious, well, I don't love, but uh, the anxious dogs coming in for an anaesthetic and commonly I'll, I want them to give them some trazodone or maybe gabapentin sort of, um, you know, a couple of hours before they come into the clinic so that they're, they're anxious. And I always say, um, you know, you give the medication, but you give it in a teaspoon or maybe half a tablespoon of food. And I, I guess, is that an okay for me to, me to be saying that they can give that medication first thing in, in a little bit of just a small amount of food? I certainly have, I mean, I certainly do that too. I must admit, if that's the easiest way, if we, if I can avoid it and it's because then then maybe I think a small amount of food is probably okay. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, you're not going to, a lot of these procedures that we do are done mid-morning, mid to late morning, um, and then a very small amount of wet food is, is, is probably okay. don't have data to sort of support that as such, except these ones where they've given a little bit of wet food a few hours before and um, it's whether it reduces reflux and things like that. We don't know. Right. Um, we don't know exactly, but I would think that a very small amount of teaspoon of food is probably going to be okay. 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 Oh, good. Good. Um, and we started the started the podcast talking about how you're uh, you're very uh, calm in a in a crisis, and I've certainly seen you seen you in that situation. But but all of us, we've all seen uh, the shows on TV. We've seen uh, was it Doctor Dreamy or McDreamy? Or I forget who it was. But <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure you've forgotten, Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can see through this facade, mate. This is, it's it's not my bag, baby. It's not my bag. <laughs> uh, but you know, do you ever you know you ever feel like you know call stat or you know or just uh something to get everyone moving no i'm not sure i'm quite that kind of person to be honest <laughs> i must admit <laughs> um no um i think i think i had trouble just i think i had to use the paddles on one dog once and i think me just sort of you know saying clear i think was was enough for me <laughs> <laughs> Um, but certainly in those, um, situations, you know, particularly for rest and things like that, everyone's so focused that you don't even have to, I think even raise a voice unless you're trying to get help, obviously, then that that's one thing, but, uh, yeah, start asking for things. You certainly, can I have an ET tube and it's kind of in your hand. I think everyone's pretty focused on, <laughs> on the top of hand at that point. Oh, I don't need to raise my voice, thankfully. Uh, very good. <laughs> That's good. Um, now, um, Eleanor, the, the good news, I've just received an email, right? So um, uh, Lewis and I, we've been saving up our, our money from our Patreon subscribers and we've just bought a magic wand, right? And now and what this magic wand's going to do is this, it's going to, um, it's going to grant you three wishes. And what I want to do is if, if you've got these three wishes, now you can either choose to spend them on, you know, you can get a Ferrari or, you know, something like that, or you could, you could choose to, to try and change something better for your, um, your, your profession, you know, so your particular part of anesthesia, if you could have three magic things just suddenly arrive, to make your life better, easier, safer, what would you, what would they be? I that's a good one. Um, I think it would be actually really nice to see more. I think I say recognition. I think certainly maybe more recognition for veterinary 
anesthetists or anesthesiologists or whatever, you know, you want. And I think it would be nice if we had more uh, of a presence in some of the refer, you know, in referral uh, settings at least, particularly with the procedures that we, you know, do that go on to referral practices and, and yeah. things like that. Um, so I think that would be, that would be certainly one thing. Um, yeah, having more involvement in, in, in referral practice, I think would be good. Um, I think that would be the biggest one I have, to be honest. Right. And I think yeah. it would be, it would be great to have more um, further or advanced anesthesia training for a lot of the nurses as well. I mean, anesthesia is for a lot of them, it's their thing. Um, And I think a lot of them do pride themselves in, you know, the job that they do particularly under anesthesia. So I think it would be nice to have some further, uh, you know, training for them or further recognition for them. Um, And you can see why for nurses, they feel that because the vets, you know, mucking around, you know, inside of whatever it is that they're, that they're doing. And they're the ones that is then keeping that animal alive. So, so yeah, you can certainly see why they'd be, why they do take it so seriously. So yeah, they certainly do. Yeah, absolutely. So that would be, that would be kind of good too. And I think it would, oh, just sort of think off the top of my head in a minute. How about a medication? Is there, you know, is there something that, you know, like a new, a new painkiller or a new, you know, or a a coffee machine or something, you know, what, what's the. (laughs) It'd be nice to have some other chronic pain drugs too for our, for our elderly critters that, or something we know that we have good evidence for. I mean, we know we have our non-steroidals, which are, which are great, but some of them, you know, we tend to use that less of if they've got, you know, kidney disease or gastric upsets that when, when they're on non-steroidal. So yeah, it'd be great to have a chronic pain drug that we knew, you know, had some good evidence behind its use and its efficacy, I think. And safe. And safe, absolutely. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. well, on, on that sort of thing. I mean, if you're looking at, yes, yeah, a geriatric cat that's that's got some chronic arthritis going on, and uh, yeah, maybe there's you know sort of getting to that age where there potentially some kidney issues as well. Are you are you still like using meloxicam? Is that sort of something that that uh, that you like to use for the, those long term sort of arthritic cats or? I think if you've got very stable disease um, and I think you've got to balance up again, these these conversations around, you know, quality of life and welfare of the animals. And and, um, I think that if, I mean, personally, if I had a cat that had chronic renal disease and was stable and it had chronic arthritis, then yes, I would probably, I would use it. We've got some evidence to suggest that those cats or non-steroidals tend to have a better movement. They get back, they go to the water bowls a lot more so that, you know, keeping themselves, you know, hopefully hydrated. Um, so I think, I think there's got to be a bit of a balance between, you know, quality of life and, and, you know, those, I guess, consequences or side effects of some of those drugs that we're using and non-steroidals are our best, are our best analgesic, you know, it's, I, we, we do write them off pretty, a lot of people do write them off pretty quickly, but um, I think we need to, Remember that also we've got these painful conditions that we need to treat too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And is that sort of something you consult on as well? That if you know, if I've got an animal that uh, a particular case that's got you know a few comorbidities going on, but I want some pain relief or I want to treat yeah. this chronic condition, is that the sort of thing you do as well? Yeah, the whole you know the whole um, uh, topic and um, area of analgesia and particularly anaesthetists' involvement in chronic analgesia is also t- you know 
evolving quite rapidly um, at the moment. So you'll find a lot of anaesthetists do do pain clinics um, as, as well and advise, as you say, on, you know, chronic pain medications with comorbidities. Um, so, yes, it's a, it's a, I, I do. Um, certainly. Yeah, good. Um, and, you know, we'll try and manage them. And and often these patients also come through to anesthesia as well with some of these as well, at the same time. And, um, yeah, that's definitely an evolving evolving area along with um, uh, local regional anesthesia as well. That's certainly something that's taken, um, that's evolved really quickly over the last, I would say, five years or so, if not a little bit longer, and just all our techniques that we've got that we can When you say local regional... What do you sort of mean? Like, are you talking local nerve blocks or what do you sort of mean? Nerve there? blocks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, I mean, everyone's familiar with epidurals, but um, we can certainly target certainly nerves, like nerve location and ultrasound guided nerve blocks. That's been something that's really taken off in the last little while. So, you know, where we can use local um, local analgesics or local anesthesia, then um, we, we do, even there's, you know, laparotomies and we can do certainly blocks for those. Um, t- uh, cruciate disease, so cruciate repairs and things like that. So there's epidurals and we can do femoral sciatic blocks um, and the same, you know, we've got blocks we can target the forelimb. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's really, it's really good, really good. Okay. Excellent. And when, um, I guess, you know, when uh, um, you go into clinics and you're doing your anesthetics and stuff, you know, coming back to the instrumentation perhaps a little bit more sort of you know and we talked about yet we've everyone's got an app alert that tells you that the 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 dogs or cat is breathing but what's the sort of one thing you think that that um you know we all seem to have a little bit of a pulse ox these days which measures the amount of oxygen in the blood is there another machine that you think if every clinic just had that that would just make those anisects just go that little bit more smoothly i think i would probably suggest um Capnography is the next one. I mean, it'd be great to also have ECG because I think there's obviously also the, the rhythm. Um, but certainly capnography um, is great. You can, um, I guess, assess how well that patient is breathing or ventilating under anesthesia. Um, I think you'd be surprised how many actually probably need, you know, some supportive ventilation, I think, with, with some of them. Um, and then it can also pick up things like, um, you know, if your animal becomes apneic, um, I mean, you could watch them. I know we certainly are paying attention to bag moving and chest moving and we can count respiratory rates that way. Um, but the capnography just gives you that little bit of extra um, information by how well they're ventilating and then um, and also whether there's obstructions in the system that can certainly alert you to things like that. Um, okay. And uh, so that would be probably my first, if I were to add yet another machine. Um, that, I guess... Mm, yeah i mean blood pressure would be the other one as well but a lot of people have a doppler these days as well which is super easy to put on um and that's pretty straightforward too well, well interesting with the doppler how do you feel about the doppler versus the um the sort of uh, the inter indirect pneumatic kind of blood pressure machines is, is one a random number generator do you think they can all be random numbers <laughs> and as long as that number is what you're hoping to see then everything's fine i mean yeah realistically they can you know if you have movement movement um can upset the oscillometric machines um if they've got arrhythmias like you might have a dog that has a bit of science arrhythmia and it struggles as well so you've got to take all that you've got to th- take all that into consideration when it's giving you these numbers 
Um, but certainly trends are important. If it's consistently one that drops suddenly, well, then that's going to alert me more so than what that specific <clears throat> that specific number is. Um, the nice thing about the dot pool, which I think everyone feels is um, reassuring, is that you can hear like it's, it's something it's audible and you can hear that you know that pulse in between times and things yes. like that. And certainly with critical ones, I must admit I find that quite comforting too. Because if everything else disappears on me, then you know, and if that's still there, then at least I can still hear um, hear a pulse too, as well as obviously you can you can palpate pulses too. But it's just there's something comforting about that. And, and, and if and if it play if it plays up, do you do you then get the nurse to? <laughs> Make the sound for you. <laughs> no, but I'll have to keep that in mind yeah. next time. Yeah. Is, is that part of the nurse training of being able to mimic the calls of different uh, monitoring machines? I think right, it so must be, yeah. I think it must be. Uh, on that note, Eleanor, look, I'd like to thank you very, very much for um, spending what is a, a beautiful Saturday um, or morning and heading into afternoon here in Melbourne. So uh, thanks a lot for your time. You've been absolutely fantastic. I think the listeners will really appreciate it. It's been, it's been great. You've been wonderful. Um, thank you very much. No worries. It's been good to talk to you. It's been fantastic. Thanks a lot, Eleanor. We'll see you next time. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Eleanor. How good was that, Lewis? I reckon that's right up there with one of the best interviews that we've had. Eleanor was fantastic. Yeah, she's excellent, mate. And I think I think the thing I love about Eleanor is she she's at the the pinnacle of her profession. She's the anesthesia specialist, but then she still you know sort of appreciates that in general practice we're we're doing our best with with the bells and the whistles that we've got and the dings and the whoosh whooshes and that whether the nurses are up to up to scratch on making those noises for us and uh, <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, no, no, just just really fantastic and good information I think about um, you know people's concern about anesthetic risk as well. And I think um, not only just worrying about her trying to do her job, but trying to make sure that uh, uh, as part of training, helping vets and helping nurses and vet clinics to be doing the best they possibly can. So um, where can people find Eleanor Lewis? Where can they... So, yeah, she works with Veterinary Anesthesia Specialist Australia. So, uh, www.vetanesthesia.com.au. You can check out Eleanor. She can, she can come out to your clinic, I suppose, if, if you want yep. to do an education session. Um, but if you're an owner out there and you're a little bit concerned about maybe your pet having an, an anesthetic and you want to get the best in, she could come in and, and consult at your your local clinic, or if maybe you've got some questions about long-term pain relief um, as well, I'm pretty sure she'll be happy to, to help out and answer with all those questions. So please go and, uh, go and check her out and support her. That's it's, Like she said, it's perhaps not as recognized a profession as it should be from us vets. Yeah. Um, and uh, so if you've got any, any follow-up questions that you'd uh, like to ask us about anesthesia that you'd like us to put to Eleanor, uh, you can uh, hit us up at uh, twovetstalkpets at gmail.com. You can find us um, on Patreon. Searches for Two Vets Talk Pets. Um, sign up and join on and so we can keep on uh, interviewing all these uh, wonderful people. If you've got uh, a, a, a 
veterinary specialty you'd like us to have a chat about maybe let us know yeah we'll see whether see what we can line up um uh, you know there's twitter and lewis is still trying to make dogs vomit on tiktok and things like that so uh, TikTok, talk talk mate don't 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 get it right the, the tiki tiki talk talk <laughs> yeah yeah um but- and um and, and we actually heard from um from uh, suzanne um a decal gal that uh, apparently i um yeah neglected to put the link on for the happy pets app um on the last lot of show notes so um i'll try and get that on for this week and i'll also try and uh, shoot across a link because i'm not sure whether or not you can actually get it i know it's an australian app but whether or not it's available outside of australia i'm not sure so we'll, um, we'll see I'm pretty sure it's on uh, uh, being such a, uh, uh, just a, a cutting edge app. It's on beta release in Australia, mate. Pretty sure. So, uh, so imagine it's going to go worldwide uh, fairly soon. Kind of like when they, you know, brought into Instagram, the, uh, the, the lack of likes, you know, not displaying the number of likes that you got on your, on your, your, your vet med bikini photo on Instagram. They started that in small countries and then expanded that worldwide. Fairly similar to that, I think. So it will probably be available in America soon um, for, for a fee, large so, fee. So, so, so it's accurate. Yeah, so, so just watch out there, Suzanne, that you don't start, um, yeah, re- because I know you're worried about reducing your efficiency of being able to work, of uh, seeing how, how you go with, you know, doing a, see, seeing what, what the level of anxiety is on a pet before and after you've actually clipped it, you know, you could, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe you could sort of compare those things. So, so just be careful. You might have to delete it off there. So and she yeah, did say at the end of her email, tell Deb and Christina, hello, and maybe they should do a future episode on their own. Sounds great. Oh. Sounds great. We could have a week off. Oh, I think it's a bit of shade there, mate. Gee whiz. And when we're not quite up to it. Uh, the decal gal can cast as much shade as she likes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that, 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 that's the sort of uh, the sort of recognition you get as a Patreon uh, subscriber to the Two Vets Talk Pet. You, you can tell us what to do. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> it's excellent. Alrighty, I think that's a wrap, mate. We'll scratch yep. you later. Peace out. Bye. Thanks for listening to Two Vets Talk Pets with Lewis and Robbie. To chat further about this week's episode or ask the guys any questions, search Two Vets Talk Pets on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or send an email to twovetstalkpets at gmail.com. You can find Lewis on Twitter with the handle at vetbehaviorist, and more importantly, as the two pet heroes return to their day job of saving animals' lives, be sure to thank them with a five-star review on iTunes. Every time you do, a small, cute animal will receive a cuddle.